do take your seats again. If I could have my uh, PowerPoint first slide up there. Thank you. So we come in our uh, sermon series on the the Lord's Prayer uh, to looking at our daily bread. As uh, Richard Dawkins notes, it's often been said that there is a God-shaped gap in the brain that needs to be filled. It was, in fact, the French philosopher Pascal who famously said, There is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every man, and only God can fill it. Well, as a rejoinder, Dawkins poses the following rhetorical question. He says, well, could it be that God clutters up a gap that we'd be better off filling with something else? Science, perhaps, or art, human friendship, humanism, love of this life in the real world, giving no credence to other lives beyond the grave. Um, No. Dawkins' response is shallow because it is in the very appreciation of science and art and human friendship and so on that we discover an unsatisfied desire for something deeper, for something more. In Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis famously wrote, Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there is such a thing as water. If I find in myself desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that doesn't prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it. If that is so, I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death. Well, the Lord's Prayer is all about keeping alive that desire for our true country, whilst bringing its influence into our lives here and now in this world. Here's how uh, Matthew records the Lord's Prayer, according to a fairly literal translation of the earliest manuscripts. It goes like this. Our Father in the heavens, hallowed be your name. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us today the bread of us for the coming day. And forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. And lead us not into testing, but deliver us from evil. Now to understand this prayer 
we need to understand a little bit about uh, Jewish Hebraic poetry. The distinguishing uh, feature of Jewish poetry is the, the rhythmical balancing of parts, or what's been called a parallelism, parallelism of thought. While English poets want their uh, sounds to rhyme, Hebrew poets want their ideas to rhyme, as it were. In so-called synonymous parallelism, an opening statement is then explained by an associated line or lines that express the same thought but with variation in order to ram home the idea. For example, Isaiah 2.4 says, They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. See, the main thought, and then it's elaborated upon. Psalm 24.4 has three lines of parallelism. The one who has clean hands and a pure heart who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god. Likewise, in the Lord's Prayer, we have, uh, hallowed be your name. Let your kingdom come, let your will be done on earth as in heaven. It's the same thought being explained with variation. What it means for God's name or his character to be hallowed or honoured, is unpacked by the parallelism of the following lines. And then Jesus' prayer ends with the parallelism of, and lead us not into testing, but deliver us from evil. In between these two lines, we get what we're focusing on today. Give us today the bread of us for the coming day. And forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. Now another poetic point here is that bread is used as a figure of speech uh, called a synecdoche, a synecdoche, in which a term for a part of something refers to the whole of something. And if, as some assume, Jesus is talking about physical bread here, then he's not just talking about physical bread. He is talking about food in general, or the things that we need to survive in general. However, I think that Jesus' reference here is more symbolic. I think that he has in mind the food of the messianic feast, mentioned, for example, in Matthew 8.11, the feast in the kingdom of heaven. Recall Jesus' conversation about, uh, with the crowd just after the feeding of the 5,000. He says, Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. And they ask him, What must we do? to work the works that God requires. And Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one who he has sent. So the crowd asked him, what sign then will you give us that we may see it and believe you? This is deeply ironic. 
What will you do? They ask. Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it's written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, it's not Moses who's given you the bread from heaven, but it is my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So they say, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life, which our first hymn picked up on this. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never go thirsty. It's worth noting that scholars, at least since the time of St. Jerome here, have worried over the rather odd Greek word that's used in the Gospels for daily bread, in daily bread. The exact meaning of this term has proved elusive. Many of the early church fathers interpret this famous word in such a way that the petition prays not for the common bread of everyday life, but for a spiritual food, even the bread from heaven. Uh, so, with slight differences, interpret it Oregon and Tertullian and Cyril of Jerusalem and Athanasius and Ambrose and Augustine. Jerome himself refers to an ancient Aramaic version of the Lord's Prayer, which petitions, give us today the bread of tomorrow. If this represents Jesus' meaning, then as Rowan Williams comments, Jesus was telling us to pray for the gifts of the coming kingdom to be received in the present. The need that we must learn to express is a need not simply for sustenance, but for God's future. What we need is the new creation, the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So the prayer for bread is a prayer for our most fundamental needs to be met. And those needs are only met in a relationship with God founded on the forgiveness found in Christ. Appealing to the findings of empirical psychology, the Christian philosopher J.P. Morland observes that contrary to what you might think, power, for example, money, or education, or success, or health, or sexual attractiveness, or being youthful, these things are not at all important as factors conducive to happiness and to human flourishing. Moreland lists the factors that are shown to be important for happiness and flourishing. He says at the top of the list is living in a constant spirit of gratitude, a sense of thankfulness in life. Next were unselfishly caring for and helping others, learning to give and receive forgiveness, and finding a deep and real sense of meaning and purpose in life 
by giving oneself to a larger framework than your own individual existence. These are the things that really make us truly, deeply happy. The Lord's Prayer puts us into that frame of mind which the Apostle Paul called the secret of being content in any and every situation. Whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Philippians 4.12 Such contentment comes from the security of knowing that our, our really fundamental needs are being met by Jesus. And so we can join with the author of Hebrews in being content because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Again, see the parallelism in the poetry. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? This understanding of the petition for bread explains its poetic connection with the prayer for forgiveness in the next line. First, reconciliation with God is a possibility opened up through Jesus' bodily death on the cross. Forgiveness is itself a sign and a foretaste of that heavenly future in which God's will is done on earth as in heaven. And so an instance of tomorrow's bread. Moreover, as Rowan Williams again says, if forgiveness is the most demanding instance of learning to offer up one's own resources for the sake and dignity of the other, if it is in so many ways the least natural or the most countercultural form of service to other. It is surely right to see it as a gift from the future, as God's undefeated purpose for us draws us forward. Having asked for the kingdom to come, we pray for our daily foretaste of that coming bread, that coming day. Above all, as a demonstration in a God-empowered forgiveness to those who sin against us, who are our debtors. Give us this day our daily bread is thus a prayer. For Christ to be our food and sustenance, so that all self-sufficient pride, all individual anxiety and defensiveness, all greedy effort to live at the expense of the neighbour, can be overcome. And the church declares with clarity the conviction that there is indeed a bread for the world's hunger that is found in the body of our Lord. Amen.